Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Mary Caldor, and I run the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit. And I'm really happy that today we're launching Jonathan Steele's book. Here it is, Ghosts of Afghanistan. Jonathan is the former chief correspondent of The Guardian. But importantly for this book, he's been covering Afghanistan since the, the period of the Soviet invasion. And that makes his own sort of personal insights on what happened particularly interesting. So I highly recommend the book, and you'll be able to buy it and get him to sign it afterwards. And so Jonathan's going to start and he's going to talk about some of the main arguments in the book. And then we're very lucky also to have Francesc Vendrell, who was the former UN Special Representative to Afghanistan, and later the EU Representative to Afghanistan, and is now a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Civil Society and Human Security Research Unit. And so he will talk about the Taliban and the prospect for a political solution. So I'll hand over to Jonathan. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mary. As Mary has just said, Afghanistan has been part of my life for the past 30 years. I've reported from the country in each of its turbulent modern phases, starting with the Soviet occupation. I was there three times in the 1980s in Kabul. Then the civil war, which resumed after the Russians left in 1989 and which culminated in the destruction of Kabul by Islamist warlords in the 1990s who shelled each other's strongholds for four terrible years in the city of Kabul. And then again in September 1996, I was one of the many correspondents who rushed to Afghanistan to report on the Taliban capture of the city. We watched them ripping cassette tapes out of cars because they forbade any kind of music being played. They pulled crates of alcohol out of the cellars of the Intercontinental Hotel and laid them out on the road and drove a tank over them to smash all the alcohol. Although I must say the driver got a little bit confused because the fumes of the alcohol <laughs> began to infect him. And after 9-11, I was back again in Afghanistan covering the US attack, which helped to topple the Taliban in a matter of weeks. And I've made about six visits, I think, since then to cover NATO's uphill struggle to pacify the country against a resurgent Taliban. Afghanistan has a complicated, tragic recent history, and I'm obviously not going to try and go through it all this evening. What I want to try and do is to talk about some of the myths, what I call the myths about Afghanistan. There are 13 of them mentioned in this book, and I try and debunk them because I think they contain with them a great deal of misunderstanding, and if you can get to the truth of them, then we'll have a better chance of seeing where we can go from here, which is what Francis will be talking about a bit later on. So the first myth I'm going to deal with is this, the Soviet Union suffered a massive military defeat. This, of course, is part not just of the Western narrative that the Russians were defeated in Afghanistan, it's part of the Afghan Mujahideen myth, uh, their thinking. And of course, it was part of the thinking of Osama bin Laden, who thought, said, we defeated the Russians in Afghanistan. In fact, we did more than that. We brought down the Soviet empire. 
because of their failure and their humiliation in Afghanistan, and we're going to bring down another empire now. That was the Osama bin Laden line, and he coincided very much with the Western view. Well, actually, it's not true, because although the Russians had certain offensives that they made, which didn't achieve the goals they wanted, they were never actually defeated in a pitched battle, and they could have remained there much longer than they did. The reason why they left was that a new leader came to power in Moscow in 1985, who had inherited a war from his predecessors, which was not going well, and which he realized was basically a stalemate. <coughs> now, I think uh, we may be beginning to detect some of the parallels between what the Russians did and what the Americans are now doing now, because we also have now sitting in the White House, a man who inherited a war from his predecessors, which is not going very well, but unfortunately who has not yet recognized that it is a stalemate. They still think that they can push back the Taliban to the point where, if there are negotiations, the Taliban will be negotiating from weakness. <coughs> so this is really an important point, that Gorbachev realized that there had to be a political settlement and he told his Afghan clients in Kabul, first Babrak Kamal, and when Babrak wouldn't accept it, he was replaced, and they brought in Mohammed Najibullah, who did follow the Gorbachev line of trying to negotiate with the resistance or the insurgents, whatever you want to call them, the Mujahideen. And really, a very important point is that the Soviet military did not dissent from this. There was no clash between the political leadership in the Kremlin and the military leadership on the ground in Afghanistan, they could see that they were not winning. We know now from the Soviet archives since the collapse of the Soviet Union some of the flavor of the internal discussions. Um, let me just quote to you from what Marshal Sergei Akromyev, the chief of the general staff, told the Politburo in November 1986, quotes, after seven years in Afghanistan, there is not one square kilometer left untouched by a boot of a Soviet soldier. But as soon as they leave a place, the enemy returns and restores it all back the way it used to be. We have lost the peasantry. Now, recently, the US National Intelligence Estimate, which is done every year, was partially leaked to the New York Times, and it said that the war is now a stalemate. And the few advances that have been made by the military since the surge that Obama brought in are undermined by lack of popular support, loss of popular support, because of government corruption and government incompetence. Now, that was the view of the intelligence community. Sixteen intelligence agencies in Washington, they produce a combined report called the National Intelligence Estimate. Unfortunately, and this is unlike... Marshal Akhunyev, who I just quoted, there was a dissent written by four top American officials who would not agree, they could not accept publicly at least, the NIE estimates. So we had John Allen, who is ComISAF, the commander of the International Security Assistance Force in Kabul, saying he disagreed with the intelligence find. Ryan Crocker, the US ambassador in Kabul, saying he disagreed. Admiral Stavridis, who's the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, 
and uh, General James Mattis, who's head of US Central Command, all refused to accept the estimate of the people who really know what's going on, the intelligence people, that the war is a stalemate. So that is a very big difference, unfortunately, between what happened with the Soviet occupation and what is now currently happening in Washington. Let me come on to the second myth. The myth is that after the Russians left, we walked away. West walked away. You hear it from people constantly. Hillary Clinton, in testimony recently to Congress, said exactly that. She said after 1989, the West walked away, but now we're going to be smarter and more strategic, and we're going to stand firm and not abandon the country. Ryan Crocker, who I've just mentioned, the US ambassador, has gone on record saying the same thing. Well, if only they had walked away. They did not walk away. They continued the arming of the Mujahideen, even though there wasn't a single Russian soldier anymore in the country. They told the Mujahideen, you just have to keep on fighting and we're continuing to supply you. You don't need to negotiate with the Najibullah government of Kabul. You will win everything. And as a result of that, the civil war carried on and eventually, not because of the military defeat, but because of a change of regime in, what, in Moscow, and the advent of Yeltsin, who came in and who had a very different world view from Gorbachev uh, and wanted to cut back on all uh, Russian commitments overseas, uh, they, they cut their supplies to the Kabul government, which did then implode and collapse. And we then had Mujahideen coming in, failing to run the country properly, continuing their civil war now amongst themselves instead of against the, the Kabul government, because that had collapsed. And this then led to the Taliban, because they came in annoyed and upset that the Mujahideen leadership, the older generation with whom they'd been fighting the Russians, had now shown they were just appalling leaders and could not even coalesce together when they'd got the whole cake to share, as it were, among themselves. Um, and the Taliban you know, was a kind of fundamentalist, puritanical, Protestant uh, revolt against the Mujahideen leadership. <coughs> so if the West had in fact walked away, we might not have had the Taliban, but um, <coughs> the West didn't walk away. The third myth is that the Taliban invited Osama bin Laden to Afghanistan in the, in the 1990s. Of course, Osama bin Laden was there in the 1980s, fighting as the jihadi against the Soviet occupation and was in indirect contact with the CIA because, as I mentioned at the beginning, they were also supplying the Mujahideen. I'm talking about the second time he went to Afghanistan because after 9-11, of course, there was this idea that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are exactly the same thing and to revenge 9-11, the Taliban had to be toppled. Well, as I say, it wasn't the Taliban who invited Osama bin Laden to come to Afghanistan in 1996. He was, he'd left, he'd gone back to Saudi Arabia, then he moved to Sudan, and it was from there that he really organized the early Al-Qaeda atrocities, the attack on the US Embassy in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in, 1990, uh, in, in, in 1998. And uh, he had to go somewhere because the Saudis started putting pressure on Sudan to get rid of him. 
with obviously the Americans also pressing the Saudis to do the same thing. So where could he go? There weren't very many places that he could go to. So he decided to go back to Afghanistan because it was fairly chaotic and uh, he thought he would be safe and he in fact organized through one of the Mujahideen leaders, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, to go to Jalalabad and he went in an official government plane uh, uh, supplied by the Mujahideen leadership that was at that time uh, in, uh, allegedly in charge in Kabul. <coughs> then a few months later the Taliban did topple that government and take over and again Osama had to make a choice. Uh, do I now leave because my hosts have been defeated and they've departed from Kabul and Jalalabad or do I get in bed with the new rulers that these people called the Taliban? and he chose the latter option and uh, then uh, made his peace as it were or made his arrangements and overtures to the Taliban and uh, moved down to Kandahar. So this was really a marriage of convenience between Osama and Tal the Taliban. It was not initiated by either side. Of course, during the five years that followed from 1996, yes, it's true that Osama did make close uh, contact with the Taliban and worked closely with them and they found it quite useful to have him with his finance and his Arab jihadis and so on to help them. And so it wasn't entirely a surprise that when 9-11 uh, happened, which I'm sure did not have any foreknowledge by the Taliban, it was held, held very secretly and a small uh, number of people who were linked to Al-Qaeda knew about it. The Taliban were not aware of it. Um, uh, but when it happened and Bush said, you've got to hand over uh, Osama bin Laden to us, uh, the Taliban fell back on the sort of traditional Pashtun hospitality thing, saying, he's a guest, we cannot just throw out our guest, give us the evidence that he really was behind 9-11. And then, of course, at that stage anyway, Osama had moved from Kabul to the Tora Bora Mountains, eastern Afghanistan, and even if the Taliban had wanted at that stage after 9-11 to arrest Osama and hand him over to the Americans, it's very unlikely that they could have done it. I mean, if it took the Americans nine years to find Osama bin Laden with their night vision equipment, you know, their, their spies in the sky, their satellites, their drones with cameras everywhere, it took them nine years to find him. How do you think the Taliban, with their very primitive military technology, could have found uh, Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora? after 9-11. So the whole premise of the US attack toppling the Taliban was flawed because uh, the Taliban had no way of really arresting Osama bin Laden. So the Americans, of course, were trying to do both, find Osama, but I think they used the toppling of the Taliban as a way of somehow getting more support around the world for their attack on Afghanistan because they could say, well, we've at least got rid of these terrible people press women who are completely uh, unacceptable in human rights terms. So we might not have found Osama bin Laden, but at least we've you know, made a huge advance in terms of uh, uh, progress uh, in human rights by getting rid of the Taliban. Which now brings me on to my fourth and final myth, which is that the Taliban are uniquely harsh oppressors of women. And of course that is used, as I've just said, to justify retroactively the attack on the Taliban <coughs> in, 19, in 2001 by the Americans. <coughs> well, the Taliban are not at all good when it comes to 
women's rights. That, there's no denying that and there's no way you can get around that. I certainly am not in any way apologizing or trying to defend the Taliban. The fact, unfortunately, though, is that the way they would like to keep women... Oh, I'm so sorry. The way they would like to, um, to uh, treat women is part of the rural culture of Afghanistan and indeed of the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. If you go there, you will also see women in burqas um, if they're allowed out of their family compound at all. Usually women are kept uh, very much within the family compound. Um, the whole issue of treating women as chattels, as commodities that, who can be bought and sold or given in marriage completely without any uh, consent. There is a practice called BARD, B-A-A-D, whereby if somebody in my family kills somebody in Mary's family or Francis' family, their family will come to my people and say this is it an outrage, we are going to have to have a blood feud or else we need compensation. And one of the forms of compensation, so-called, is that a young girl from my family has to be given to their family to make up for the fact that somebody died. Um, <clears throat> and uh, these brides who have just not given any option are then treated by the host family, the new family, where they are often as just household slaves, basically, and sex slaves. And in fact, even when there's a, the bard isn't, isn't being operated and it's just some kind of arranged marriage, one has to recognize that, according to UN figures, 53% of all marriages in Afghanistan today are child marriages, in which, in other words, in which one member, one person in the couple is under 16. 53% of all marriages involve somebody under 16 and of course it's no uh, mystery that uh, usually that person under 16 is the girl. <clears throat> so it's a very, very harsh environment culturally in rural Afghanistan. What the uh, Taliban did was to transfer these rural practices to the cities like Kandahar and, and Kabul and of course that is <clears throat> a step backward. But don't think that if you can defeat the Taliban you're going to somehow make things wonderful for women uh, because it's going to take decades and foreigners cannot come in and change uh, deep-seated cultural practices in that way and they shouldn't try to come in and do those things either. So that is why I argue and well, Francis will obviously be able to enlarge on this much more than I want to do tonight. I argue that we have to bite the psychological bullet and say we, there have to be negotiations because the war is a stalemate, it's costing lives, it's costing money, it's not going anywhere, so you have to negotiate. Who do you negotiate with? You don't negotiate with, with the unarmed people who are on your side. You have to negotiate with the armed people who are not on your side, who are your enemies. Just as Britain eventually did negotiate with the IRA in Northern Ireland, the men with the guns, you have to negotiate with the men with the guns in Afghanistan. Um, <clears throat> by all means during the negotiations try and do what you can to get guarantees that in some kind of government of national unity because I don't think the Taliban are going to take over the whole country I think it would be a government of national unity in which they would have a share but not the monopoly um, try and negotiate yes the best 
human rights deal you can get. But that Afghans have to do that negotiation, not, not uh, foreigners. <clears throat> the foreigners have to negotiate how long their troops remain and when they're going to come out. Uh, and uh, they shouldn't be trying to negotiate on the internal issue of what kind of Afghanistan will survive uh, after what is actually 38 years of war. For us, the war's been going on 10 years. Afghanistan's been going on since 1973. Thank you. Well, well <clears throat> it's really not... Um, I hope I can be heard. Uh, let me, um, first of all, say that I much enjoyed reading Jonathan's book and that if you read it, and I hope you do, uh, and I'm not getting 10% of, of his, uh, <laughs> of his um, uh, whatever, he, uh, his royalties, um, uh, if you do read the book, you will certainly find it extremely challenging. Um, and I, I'm not going to now to, uh, I mean, we agreed on a division of labor, and therefore, these are the subjects given to me. And since I spent 10 years at university, I have a tendency still to follow the questions as if I were taking an oral exam. So the first question that I was asked to discuss was, are the Taliban genuine in, in negotiate? Do they genuinely want to negotiate, or are they simply buying time? First point. Well, it's very hard to say, uh, obviously. Um, uh, I suppose that they realize that, I'm pretty sure they realize, that they are not in a position to take over the country as a whole, uh, not yet anyway, and that um, maybe the best approach would be first to negotiate some share of power. Um, <clears throat> I still believe that ultimately they would like to achieve full control of the country, um, even if and after an agreement has been reached. But that doesn't mean just because they want it, doesn't necessarily mean they'll be able to have it or do it. Of course, then there is the relationship with Pakistan, which I'll discuss a little bit later. They are obviously not happy being un, uh, under Pakistan um, under Pakistan hospitality, and uh, there are, uh, and so they might be seeking a way of um, uh, becoming freer from this uh, curious relationship they have they have with Pakistan. I, I, when I was the UN envoy in the last two years of the Taliban, it was quite obvious that the Taliban weren't terribly fond of the Pakistanis, even though the Pakistanis seemed to believe the contrary. Um, I think that they may be fearing losing control of their fighters, because uh, one of the, um, the tactics, I can't say it's... A, Beyond, it goes beyond that. One of the tactics of General Petraeus has been to kill, and inherited from General Petraeus, has been to kill mid-level Taliban commanders um, in the expectation that then the Taliban will simply submit, uh, when in fact the danger and what we, we fear is that there are more radical commanders taken over 
and probably less loyal to the Kuwait Ashura, which is what we, for lack of a better word, I would call the Taliban command. Um, I think they have, um, they want to see foreign forces out of the country, and I think they would like to get the credit for it. And I think they also want to become a more visible political force, which the talks uh, in uh, in um, in Qatar may give them the opportunity. Um, um, I think it might be that they are not even sure whether they want to reach a compromise, but they may be wanting to test the waters to see how far things can go. And also, in negotiations have their own dynamic. So even if at this moment the Taliban may not be willing to reach an agreement that would be acceptable at least to the Americans and possibly uh, most likely to the Afghans, um, a dynamic develops at times which may lead to compromises that neither side was willing to do at the beginning. Um, I suspect they want to negotiate with the Americans and not with Karzai. Um, I think that would give them a much greater uh, leverage and the perception amongst the Afghans would obviously increase of their role. Um, they may uh, find it relatively easy to do that uh, because President Karzai has not achieved um, a consensus in the political elite in Afghanistan about negotiations with the Taliban, nor has he established so far um, um, a structured negotiating team. And uh, I'm sure that the Taliban will play with the competition that now exists between the government in Kabul and the government in Washington. Um, and they'll probably play it for what it's worth. Um, the next question I had was, what are the Taliban's goals? Well, obviously, I'm not, you need to ask them if they would ever say it. But most likely, as I said earlier, I think they want full control of Afghanistan, if they can get away with it. But that, of course, is not, they are not the only, the only group on earth that wants to get control. Uh, many, most um, liberation or guerrilla groups want eventually to achieve power. But I think they might be willing to achieve, in the meantime, a measure of power based on, and I don't think on power sharing, not at the center. I think they would probably like to end up with, to start with anyway, with some control or supremacy of uh, those provinces where the Pashtun are a majority. So that would probably mean the provinces in the south and the east. Um, the, um, and you could imagine a quote-unquote election uh, in which the northern warlords would be, as they are now, elected governors of provinces in the north and east, uh, in the north and west, and the uh, Taliban would be, quote-unquote, elected uh, governors of, if, if governors were to be elected, which at the moment is not um, in the Constitution. But I suspect the Constitution will be changed. Uh, 
Now, I think they would, I don't see them wanting to have ministries in Kabul, not, not for as long as Karzai is president, um, or for as, as long as the system that exists now. But I wonder, I, susp- I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to see the Emir al-Mu'minin, uh, Mullah Omar, or uh, a council of them, uh, set up, I think they might want to have a supreme ulema council in Kabul, perhaps, with the power to veto legislation, um, which in their view is not, was not in accordance with Sharia, or their interpretation of Sharia, or to veto policies that they consider to be un-Islamic. On human rights, women's rights, education and employment, well, I think on women's rights, they, for as long as the West was still present, for as long as the West still provided financial assistance, uh, I think they would be willing to be more accommodating on women's rights than they were in their first incarnation um, on issues such as separate schools for girls, separate schools for girls, for as long as that was paid by foreigners, uh, some kind of empl- employment under some kind of apartheid system. Um, uh, I think they would also sign probably on some human on some human rights. Sign on that I did not say comply with. Um, and finally, um, I think that they would want to avoid the mis- some of the mistakes they made in the 1990s when they, in a way, their conduct isolated them from the international community. Um, third, is Pakistan protecting the Taliban? That's, and is Pakistan willing to see negotiations proceed and ultimately succeed? Well, I, I, I think that um, Pakistan does con- uh, will continue to see um, the Taliban or these elements of the Taliban as a strategic asset uh, in terms of India, in terms of ensuring that there is a compliant government in Kabul. Um, I think Pakistan clearly would prefer to be the channel for talks with the Taliban. They would be the, the, the conduit. But I think it's somewhat reassuring for the moment that they seem to, they are allowing some Taliban uh, in Pakistan to travel to Doha um, for talks with the Americans. Um, I think they will attempt and probably be able to retain a measure of control over the Taliban and what the Taliban may, may, may agree or not agree by the mere fact that most of the Taliban leadership is in, in Pakistan that's, and that the families of the Taliban are also in Pakistan. They obviously have a close relationship, and I would say probably to some degree a hold, over the Haqqani network. Um, I think they are afraid, uh, Pakistan, uh, of chaos in Afghanistan after 2014. Um, And depending on the kind of progress achieved in talks between the Americans or the Kabul government and the the Taliban, they may support the talks or sabotage them. Um, I would be careful, uh, if I were the Americans, not to go quickly for ceasefires 
non-monitored ceasefires uh, normally fail and they are the cause of further mistrust. Um, and I think political issues need to be settled, ought to be settled first. But who am I to say? Um, a lot in terms of Pakistan, it also will depend what role India is perceived as playing during the, during the next three years and what role it might play or it might be able to play afterwards. I think that is the one key element and constant in Pakistani policy. Um, now, the, role, the fourth question, and I'll soon be over, uh, role of other regional countries and how they should be brought into any negotiating process. Well, there are clearly two countries apart from Pakistan which are deeply interested in Afghanistan. One is Iran, the other one is India, although the Pakistanis get rather excited when one mentions that India is also needs to be involved. And I can understand a little bit some of their annoyance, but the fact is that, the, uh, that there has been a long relationship between India and Afghanistan, and, and it's not only the Indians and enticing the Afghans. The Afghans are very happy to jump into bed with the Indians and have done so since 1947. Um, but Iran, how are you going to bring Iran without, uh, is the US going to somehow reach an understanding with Iran as to how to settle or what kind of settlement would be acceptable to Iran in Afghanistan? I very much doubt it, and I, I think the way relations have developed or have, have reached such a nadir in the last uh, few months uh, doesn't order well for, and, and, uh, and for the moment, it doesn't look as if the Americans or the Karzai government, or as far as I can tell almost anyone, feels the need for a facilitator, for a third party facilitator. And I think without a mediator or a mediating team or facilitating team, you're not going to be able to reach an agreement that would be acceptable to the Afghan public on the whole um, and also acceptable to the three key neighbors, apart from other countries that also ought to be brought into, although they are they, perhaps not as closely, which are Russia and the Central Asian countries, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and of course China. And, um, and finally, yes, although I was the EU envoy for, Afghani to, for Afghanistan for six years, I had almost forgotten the EU. But we are so easy to please if the Americans sign on the dotted line. Thank you. Well, I'm going to go straight into questions. I do have questions myself, but I'm going to take them from the floor. So who would like to begin? And if you do, it'd be really nice if you would give your name, the lady there. Hi, uh, my name's Henrietta Lynch from uh, UCL. Uh, you seem to be suggesting that uh, basically people should stay out of Afghanistan and let them sort it out themselves. But after what we're hearing afterwards, I mean, ha how is this going to be possible? Is this possible? What do we do about this? Because I can't see what's out of it. Yeah, stand up. Do whatever you like. 
Incidentally, Mary, we were supposed to have a discussion for 10 minutes, but let the I public know, speak first. Well, I was just wondering whether we shouldn't go straight. Ah, right. Know, but let's have a discussion. No, no, I think I suspect that there are enough controversial points that you've made yeah. that that will be a good debate <laughs> without my having to say anything. Well, <laughs> I'm going to stand up, not because I you know, want to be dominant, but because of this rather awkward podium thing here. If I sit... You know, some people can't see. Um, well, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with outside people being engaged in Afghanistan in an age and development context. And uh, clearly, the country, which is one of the poorest in the world, needs it. So let's have as many UN agencies as possible, UNICEF, UN, you know, UNESCO, WHO, all the rest of it, plus all the other international NGOs like Médecins Sans Frontières and Oxfam and Save the Children and so on. I'm all in favor of that, but I think the prescription of what kind of constitution Afghanistan should have and what guarantees for human rights and women's rights should be in there is a matter for the Afghans. We shouldn't try and impose it. So that's the division of labor I would make. And of course, as Francis pointed out, we do need negotiations, a role to be given or a place to be given for hugely important uh, regional countries like Iran, India, Central Asian states, uh, as well as Pakistan. Yeah. My question is immediately to Jonathan. I mean, you said the um, issue of constitution or deciding uh, what uh, legal system Afghanistan should have should be left to Afghan people. By Afghan, who do you mean by Afghan people? Are Taliban Afghan people or are people who are giving their lives because they want the freedom or they want to have education for women? They don't want to be in that uh, you know, archaic system of uh, Taliban being, um, you know, anti-everything, which is uh, which is the sign of human progress. I mean, don't forget that it was Taliban who destroyed Bamiyan, for example. Uh, they they can destroy many many uh, elements of of art. Uh, uh, civilization or anything you can name if they have the power. So who is Afghan people in here? That's, that's very important to define. And if by Afghan people we mean the lowest, you know, sort of, um, not, not lowest, I mean, it's, this is the wrong word to say, the pe people who are least educated, let's say, would you accept the same thing in some other country, that the least educated people can come and take over and dictate to the other how they should live and what they should follow in their life? Well, I mean, the short answer to that would be yes. <laughs> and, and I was also yes to the question of are the Taliban Afghan people. Of course they're Afghan people. Uh, you know, the Arab fighters of Osama bin Laden, the jihadists and so on, they're not. And in fact, there's quite a lot of tension between the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda people on the ground. They don't like these Arab fighters coming in. And uh, th th that's, that's very clear. So it's not just that the Afghan Taliban are quite worried about Pakistan and don't particularly like it. They don't like the Arabs particularly interfering either, uh, let alone the Americans and the British interfering. So yes, they, they are there. And, you know, we're living in a real world. If, if the Taliban are part of the Afghan equation, which I think they are, then the, the Afghans themselves have to negotiate and see what can be achieved. I mean, just simply to exclude them from the equation means continuation of war. We've had 10 years of war and it hasn't excluded them from the equation. They're still very, very strong. Uh, and so, you know, you have to find another way than exclusion. Uh, you try and bring them to, through inclusion, 
But I'm not sure that I uh, agree entirely with Francis. I mean, they may want to take total control of the country, as indeed sort of any political party probably would like to do. But I think they recognize they're not as strong as they were in the 1990s. They have a track record, which they didn't have then. Then they were the sort of new boys in town, and quite a lot of people, as I saw myself in 1996, September, when they took over Kabul, actually welcomed them, including women, because they said, we, we've had four years of hell, of our city being destroyed, these artillery battles going on across the city, and we want an end to it. And we think the Taliban will bring security, you know, not women's rights, but they'll bring security. And peace, after all, is the greatest human right. Um, so uh, I think they would have to settle for uh, less than 100% control. And as Francis pointed out, uh, they might not even want ministers in a Kabul government, as long as they control the south and east where the Pashtun people are largely uh, based or, you know, live. Uh, they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't necessarily want more than that. So. So there you are. Um, well, but I, 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 may, may I just add, I mean, that what you, you say sounds remarkably, uh, Jonathan, what you say sounds remarkably what the slogan built in Bonn in December 01. This will be an Afghan-led process. And I complained at the time, saying it's Afghan-led, yes, but who are the Afghans who are going to be able to lead? The only ones who will be able to lead are those with weapons. And so in a way, when we say, leave it to the Afghans, uh, Jonathan, in a way, you, you say, leave it to the armed groups in Afghanistan to settle it. And I, I, I think that uh, the, the West and the Afghans expect the people in the West to support them who will be the weakest element in any negotiations. Stuart. Sorry, I ha just here at the front, and then the this one. This is at the, the working class chap over there. <laughs> um, thank you for, very much for two excellent presentations. I'm, I'm Stuart Gordon from the LSE. Um, I've got a question for both of you, which is really about um, what impact are, is the American um, presidential election likely to have on grand strategy, diplomacy, and the prospects for settlement. And also, what needs to be done in terms of diplomacy that's not already taking place? What, what would be the, um, the sort of new innovation that would expedite some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, settlement? Uh, well, I, I think um, that there is a possibility, of course, that, I mean, with the announcement by the Obama administration, that they are likely to start moving troops out and handing over responsibility to the Afghans uh, in 2013, a year earlier than originally thought, although admittedly there is the issue of transferring. That this could play in, uh, a game, I mean, could become an issue in the elections. Although um, the impression I have uh, is that the, 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 the war in Afghanistan is no longer popular in the U.S. and that not many votes will be gained by the Republican candidate uh, by uh, opposing Obama's um, intention to withdraw. Um, uh, and I suspect that even if they did, if this, this became a campaign issue, my gut feeling would be that um, once if a, the Republican candidate won, that he would follow a policy not very different 
from that of Obama, because I think by now there is a general feeling in, in the US Congress too that the time has come to, to leave. Um, on the diplomatic front, I think an awful lot more can be done. I mean, I, I think, as I was beginning to say earlier, I think this is a, a, a case where you would need a very uh, skillful diplomatic, international diplomatic team, possibly appointed by the UN Secretary General, despite the, the, the fact that the UN has more handicaps today than it had years ago, um, to, to, to build up this network of uh, first ensuring that the Afghan um, public, and particularly the leadership in Afghanistan, uh, is buys into uh, and the idea of a political settlement and reaches some understanding on what the concessions might be and where the red lines would lie. You would also need to build a I mean, uh, you'd also need to ensure that the Afghan government and the U.S. government are singing from the same hymn page, which uh, is certainly not happening now. Uh, you would then need to outline, uh, of course, uh, approach the Taliban or, or have the Taliban in, at, the, at the table, but you would need to talk to each neighbor separately, not in a group as Turkey sometimes does it, with seven or eight countries. You need a separate talks with the key uh, neighboring countries to work out what are their minimum demands and the ones that are, com and how they, they can be compatible with each other. And then you need to proceed and then think of a veri verification and monitoring mechanism that would be credible if a political agreement was, was reached. The gentleman right at that. Oh, okay. Um, it sounds quite good, the kind of book you've written, um, but especially being an Afghan from Pakistan. I mean, Pashtun, I have certain disagreements with your book. I'd like to suggest some comments maybe you might put in your book and you might sell it very well. Um, and one of them is, you didn't mention the Pashtun population in Pakistan, and how come can you have peace in Afghanistan if you have totally ignored 40 million Pashtun population. There are 30 million Afghans. By Afghan word, I mean the Pashtuns. The Pash Afghan word means Pashtun. The Taliban's are Pashtun. And there are 40 million Pashtuns in Pakistan. And the Afghan war is engineered, run, and cooed from Pakistan. How, you didn't mention that at all. So that means you basically are trying to keep us in dark. And Taliban were basically from Quetta City. Malawmar was from Quetta City. Majority of them were no economic nationalists, neither extremists. They were ISI planned, ISI engineered and good people to run Afghanistan, not to run, to have a pro-Pakistan government in Afghanistan so they can maintain. One of the main reasons they wanted to do that was different line. Different line by the British was to divide Afghanistan. The treaty finished in 1993. Now was the time where these 40 million people had to merge back with Afghanistan. That means to break Pakistan in two pieces. One is all the Pashtun population merge back with Afghanistan. Second is Pakistan will have a kind of civil war, and Pakistan never wanted that. The Pakistani government, the Pakistani intelligence, the Pakistani think tank killed all the Afghan intellectuals, including Najibullah. Dr. Najibullah was hanged in Kabul for no reason. 
He had done nothing. He was in prison when the Taliban went in control. The first thing they did was to hang him. So I'm going to finishing stop here so, yeah. that you can't have a peace in Afghanistan if you're trying to ignore the Pashtun population in Pakistan, so-called Pakistan. We disagree with the existence of Pakistan, which is a fake creation and which is a big trouble. That's why, till you don't sort out this, till you don't sort the Pakistanis backing up the Taliban, you can't have peace in Afghanistan because the Taliban's are Pashtun and they have a right straight interest, economic nationalist interest in the country. So let's, let's spell out. You try to <laughs> play it very diplomatically, and I disagree with that. Well, um, you've just given me a wonderful commercial for my book, because if you read it, you will find all the points you've made dealt with. I talk about the Pashtun, Pashtunistan issue. I talk about the Pashtun, the Patan, in northwest frontier province of Pakistan. I talk about the way the British did indeed divide the line, the Durand line, which is still not recognized officially by the government in Afghanistan. All those issues are there, so please buy the book. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I have two questions over there. I'll take you both at the same time. Uh, good evening. Uh, my name's Robert, and I've managed to spend a year of my life in Helmand Province, but it was in my 20s, so uh, it's not as if I had anything better to do. Um, in, in my experience, the, the resurgent Taliban, as, as, as you've referred to it, is really a bit of a mis uh, misnomer. And, and Francesca really hit the nail on the head. It's because the middle um, layer of that command structure has been removed by NATO. Um, and in my experience as well, the, what we are fighting in Helmand is not necessarily uh, an insurgency, as is put out, because they offer no political alternative at the lowest level um, to the people of Helmand. And what we seem to be fighting actually is a xenophobic resistance um, to NATO being there, um, even down to the fact that at, at stages um, I've seen uh, the insurgency, if we're going to call it that, fighting NATO and not fighting the Afghans. So if you negotiate at the highest level, which is what is being proposed at the moment, does that actually end the fighting in Afghanistan? Yeah, good question. And I don't think it does. I'll take the second one and then... Um, I just wanted to ask how far you think the Americans could actually tolerate a diplomatic solution that resulted in political legitimacy for the Taliban. Do you want Francesco? All right, well, I mean, I'll deal with the last question. I mean, I think um, that is one of the reasons that inhibits the Americans from negotiating feeling there would be a perception of a U.S. defeat if they negotiated and the Taliban emerged in some form, minority form in a government of national unity and the U.S. then left. But this was exactly the same that the Russians felt like. I mean, the, the, the debates in Moscow, as we know from the archives, were not about 
can we still win the war? I pointed out, you know, I gave you one of those quotes, and it wasn't a unique quote. There are many quotes from Soviet military saying this war is not being won. The, the people who were hesitant about it were actually people in the civilian leadership. Ironically, uh, Eduard Shabatnadze, who was, you know, the Soviet foreign minister, you perhaps remember 20 years ago, uh, from Georgia originally, um, who was saying, no, it will d damage US uh, Soviet prestige around the world. If we pull out, it looks as though we're abandoning our friends and we're unreliable and all the rest of it. So, I mean, that is always the danger. If you make a mistake and you go into a war that you shouldn't have gone into, uh, when you come out, it looks as though you're having to, admitting an enormous mistake or, you know, a blunder. And I'm afraid it was a blunder. But, you know, the political leadership has to, has to do that sometimes. And I think, if I just answer the point that was raised by somebody about the, well, actually by you, the US election, I mean, there are many, many polls in America that show the majority of Americans want to pull out of Afghanistan. I mean, I'll just mention the most recent one, which was on the 10th anniversary of the war on October the 7th last year, which uh, was a CBS poll, um, which said 53% um, of Americans think the war in Afghanistan is going badly. And um, I think it's 62% think that the Americans should come out within the next two years, which is earlier than the Obama date. I, by the end, this was a 19... 2011 polls, so by the end of 2013 they wanted them out. So uh, it, it wouldn't be an unpopular thing for the, for the Americans to come out. It, it, some people might say they've been defeated, but I think just as I said, the Soviets were not defeated, the Americans have not been defeated in, in Afghanistan, except politically. Well, f uh, first, I don't think there is uh, unity within the American administration about either the wisdom of talking to the Taliban, although talks clearly are about to start, or at least contacts, direct contacts. Um, I think that there are probably divisions, and one can count on each side undermining the other. Um, just recently, I mean, Mrs. Clinton had said in March last year, she said that uh, the, the that there were, as you may recall, three preconditions for negotiation with the Taliban. One was uh, al uh, Taliban cutting their links with Al-Qaeda, two, accepting the Afghan constitution, and three, laying down their arms. And Mrs. Clinton said a year ago, or a little less than a year ago, she said these are no longer, I mean, she didn't put it so starkly, but she basically said these are not preconditions, these are what we would hope to achieve at the end of the talks. Nonetheless, in the last couple of weeks, I have, I've noticed some senior American diplomats and talking about uh, that the Taliban should cut its, uh, should declare its opposition to international terrorism. Well, um, I, I don't think the Taliban will. Not because this is not uh, because they are particularly enamored of the international terrorism, but I think that's one card they have to eventually give up, which would be to cut their links in a very favorable way, by the way, with Al Qaeda. Um, so uh, that would be one. Um, I, I think um, I'm. I'm sorry that I'm right in <laughs> about uh, the, the, the situation, I mean, the, 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 out, the result of, um, of doing away or, or 
basically killing a lot of mid-level commanders. And, uh, and you've been in Helmand longer than I have. Uh, so I don't know whether it's certainly an insurgency to the extent that it's a group of people in arms, but whether this can be classified, you know, what is insurgency or even terrorism to, for one is liberation and resistance to others. So I would not want to, to give an opinion, although I should point out that the, Afghan, the Taliban um, continues to, perhaps not always willingly, but they are continue to kill a lot of civilians, mm. um, which is something that, uh, you know, it, 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 I, I think it's something to be greatly criticized. On the, I was interested by the Pakistanistan uh, argument without the word ever being used, um, because I, I and many other people believe uh, thought that the majority of Pashtuns living in Pakistan, although they might have some um, romantic desire to join the, Pash the Pashtuns in Afghanistan believe that they are better off in Pakistan than they would ever be in Afghanistan. And of course, the, for the non-Pashtuns in Afghanistan, the idea of Pakistan is totally an aberration, because of course they would then become a real minority in an Afghanistan which had, uh, where the territories uh, beyond the, the Duran line were to be reattached to Afghanistan. Thank you. I'd like, if I could, to intervene <laughs> and make a comment and a question. And the comment relates to the point from the gentleman from Helmand, which is that I think the Taliban has become a very decentralized organization and that there are people fighting in, for very many different causes, including purely criminal activities being engaged in the drug trade. And there's quite a lot of vested interest now in the continuation of violence. So I'm really wondering whether negotiations with the Ketashura could even succeed or whether there's any real interest and whether we should be putting so much focus on that. So that's one question. My other question, which relates really to your point to Jonathan and maybe about, you know, hand, leaving it to the Afghans means leaving it to the armed groups, which I agree with. But how does one get around that in negotiations? I mean, many of the people that I tend to talk to in Afghanistan uh, think that the government is a government of thieves, extremely predatory, and are horrified by the thought of power sharing between the Taliban and the current <laughs> warlords and the kind of lives that they will lead in the future. Uh, they probably think if it means an end to the fighting, it's, it, it's better than nothing. But basically, it's by no means a solution. So how do you ensure that the people without guns get a say in the talks? Um. On the first point, on the Quetta Shura, yeah. I think there is, first of all, one can only try. I mean, it's, it's the only available address, as it were, uh, that one we have. Uh, I, many, many the, the few people who probably know better than I do, certainly about the Taliban, believe that at the moment, if there was a political agreement which would be 
blessed and approved by Mullah Omar that most of the fighting, I mean, which included the end of the fighting, it will not include, by the way, disarmament, because the Northern Alliance hasn't disarmed and is full of weapons. But I think an agreement that was blessed by Mullah Omar would probably lead to a major reduction in fighting, although there probably would be some uh, spoilers who would oppose it. The longer one takes in, in reaching an agreement, the weaker the position of the Great Ashura probably will become. Uh, as, I mean, as for the second question that Mary has put forward, how I would ask her, since she is the advocate of human security, <laughs> uh, as to how do we do it? Because I admit that although I constantly say we must bring civil society in and we must bring the political groups, if there is pressure to achieve an agreement, and I suspect that once thoughts start, there will be pressure, uh, it's so complicated to bring in, keep civil society informed, at the same time maintaining an element of, of confidentiality without which it's very hard to make progress. Now, of course, the Americans are famous for leaks, so how much confidentiality you'll be able to keep anyway is another matter. Well, yes, I, I just wanted to say something about the um, question from the man who's been in Helmand. Um, I mean, I think there is some advantage to local ceasefires. I agree. It can't be negotiated everything at the top level. There have to be local negotiations that produce local ceasefires. And perhaps you were in Helmand at the time when the British did try in Musakala and did a deal that demilitarized the small district center of Musakala through the tribal elders who got, who made an agreement that if the British pulled out, the Taliban would pull out, or the other way around, if the Taliban pulled out, the British would pull out. And, and it did work for some months. And then I think the Americans, there was a disagreement within uh, the alliance, uh, and the Americans thought that this was somehow a sign of weakness. And um, they assassinated the brother of the local Taliban leader through a strike from the air and uh, some people think there was deliberate sabotage to, to annoy the Taliban and to, to make them repudiate the, 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 the fact that they'd withdrawn from that town. Um, so I think that should be tried again, um, local ceasefires, particularly in the context, if there's a national negotiation going on, then it's more reason to have local ceasefires. Ideally, you have ceasefire and then negotiations rather than negotiations then a ceasefire but you can have both you can have negotiations and ceasefires and then on the other point uh, Mary's point about how do you ensure people without guns get a say well this is in a way the tragedy of Afghanistan because what we're going through now is the third wave of modernization since 1919 when the country became independent which has collapsed in 1919 <coughs> Amanullah Khan the king tried to follow exactly what Kemal Ataturk was doing in Turkey, which was to modernize the country under an Islamic, um, you know, acknowledging that the country was full of, you know, basically Muslims, but to, to bring it into a, a modern development. And uh, he, Amanullah Khan, told everybody in the court that they had to wear national Western dress, get rid of the national dress. And, and, and women had to go unveiled and so on. And uh, it produced a huge reaction from the rural people, the traditional elders, the clerical people, 
and fundamentalists of various kinds, and he was toppled. Then it happened again to some extent under the king uh, after the Second World War, the next king, Zahir Shah. It happened under the Soviets because basically the Russian project was a modernization project put in the Communist Party that would sort of develop the country and turn it into, a, into something more like Soviet Central Asia, like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, which were you know, modernized and urbanized and brought, industry was brought in, blah, blah, blah. And now we have the fourth modernization under the Karzai government backed by the Americans. And of course, it's not working either, as we said at the beginning. So that is the tragedy that the number of people who, who always, who, who, when the wheel comes round again, want to try and really get together and modernize the country and, and get rid of some of these really archaic, feudal practices, try it, they're in such a small minority that they cannot succeed. And so it's the same with the people without guns. They just do not have the, you know, the mass behind them to, 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 to succeed. But I mean, it, it's, we can deplore that, but I don't think we can change that as foreigners. <coughs> But yeah, we have. Um, I have the... some questions later okay. for Jonathan. <laughs> oh, and this one too. Well, we did, you start. And okay. Then we... uh, my name's Martin Hall. Um, question is this really. Ever since the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan took over in 1978, there's been fighting. And basically, because the fighting's continued, because there's never been one party group, faction, call it what you will, which has been strong enough to control the whole country, sometimes with the intervention of outside people, sometimes not. Now, if you look at it now, it seems to me anyway that there's no real likelihood that any group, party, faction will, for the foreseeable future, uh, be in a predominant, hegemonic, whatever you want to say, position. So it seems to me that it's just going to carry on. And I'd like, in a sense, both of you to say what you think about that. And perhaps if you can think of a party group or faction that might emerge dominant, I'd be interested to know which one it was. Because it seems to me it's just, you know, it's going to be Groundhog Day, really. It's just going to carry on. That's my question. And then the gentleman here. I mean, it's sort of linked to the last point you made about uh, failed modernization. You know, my grandmother was married at 10. I'm Indian. And uh, that's a very ubiquitous practice, as you said, it was part of a feudal culture. How did it change in India? I think there were three uh, elements. Western provocation, taunting by missionaries. Uh, recognition that there was something wrong in the society by male reformers like Gandhi and Nehru, and then a feminist movement. That was the third. And the elements of all you can see in Afghanistan. You know, I was in Kabul uh, in, in August. And the most moving experience for me was to go through Kabul University and see women in class. That was possible under the Soviets, as you said. Uh, it won't be possible if, if a deal is stuck with the Taliban. Now, uh, the, the question is, I, I mean, I, I, I want to say that I really enjoyed both your presentations as a historian of modern India who's interested in Afghanistan. I learned a great deal from them. And it may be a, just a terribly difficult choice. Civil peace, uh, end of random killing of civilians and demilitarization of some kind, uh, which is what you may get if you strike a deal with the Taliban, at the cost of retarding women's rights, again, for several generations. And it may be that, I, I understand what you say, it is a very, very difficult anguish choice. But uh, I'll just make one last point about Pakistan. In India, though there's still huge discrimination against women, 
Um, the curve of reform is slowly inching upwards. You know, my daughter is sitting to my right. She's not, she was not married at 10, and she would not be married for some years. Maybe <laughs> never. All right. Now, that's her, that's her choice. Uh, so, in Pakistan, actually, it is regressing. If you visit Pakistan, as you, you certainly have, I have, over the last 10 or 15 years, in a, in, in a more cosmopolitan city like Lahore, many more women are on veils in the streets or they don't go out. So it is really a very, so I think the, the difficulty, I mean, women's rights is something that is going to get a huge setback uh, if a deal is stuck with Taliban. Maybe that's the, that's the only way pe people can live in some kind of peace. I don't know. Well, okay, let me come in with your question. I mean, I, I think the Taliban have changed, not 100% and not as far as I would like and probably you wouldn't like either, but I think they have changed. I mean, Francis said that he thought that they probably want girls in separate schools. Well, that's a big change. They didn't want girls in school at all, you know, when they were there. Although I must say that the, their argument was always a security. They never said that it's in the Quran or anything that girls can't go to school. They said because there's too much insecurity, it's very dangerous for girls to go to school. So even then, it wasn't a sort of ideology. It was presented as a pragmatic choice. Uh, but... And, of course, there were huge uh, contradictions in that. After all, <laughs> Taliban men are fathers. <laughs> Some of their children happen to be female. And uh, there were cases where they wanted their daughters to go to school. And so in the Taliban period when they were ruling the country, there were things called home schools because they closed down all the public schools and the, the women teachers were all sacked. Um, women got together, you know, generated their own mobilization and sort of said we've got to sort of educate the girls nevertheless, even if there are no public schools, so we'll have them at home, you know, so people in their own flats and apartments had, uh, were teaching the girls and Taliban knew about that, they're not stupid, they, they, they knew it was happening but they basically turned a blind eye to it and we have many cases uh, where people, they would come to the people who are running these home schools saying can we get our daughter in, you know, don't tell anybody that she's my daughter but you know, can she come. So, so you know, there, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that it's not as absolute even then in 1996 to 2001 when they were in charge of the whole country as I think it would be if they came in charge now and I still don't think they will ever get complete control again so it, again they'll have to make compromises well, and one point which I would also I would have raised afterwards but you when you say no now. no but I raise it now because it's linked in a way I mean I think what the Taliban did to women is uh, with women in, uh, in Afghanistan is a bit what the South African National Party did in 1948 when it established apartheid. There was already this huge separation of races in the, under uh, SMATS, under the United National Party, under the United Party, sorry. Uh, what, um, what the Afrikaners did, what the national, na Nationalist Party did was to legislate about it and therefore make it much more rigid and in a way, they got far more opprobrium than perhaps his predecessors also deserved. And so, in a certain way, that's a little bit of what the Taliban did in 1996 by imposing uh, a rule that, yes, many women in the countryside, particularly Pashtun women, would have normally lived with, but imposing it across the country and particularly in the cities uh, and amongst the urban groups, 
I think it became much more, much more resented. And that's, this is what, coming back to the point you were raising, I think that would be probably a stalemate. Uh, I don't see the, the, uh, the Taliban anytime soon taking over, but mainly it would be also because since 2001, there has been an enormous growth in the Afghan urban population. It is now about 50% of the country, which is uh, where it used to be only about 15%. And I don't see the people in Kabul, I'm, I'm not saying all, of course, but the, 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 mid, the lower middle class, the middle class is accepting the Taliban as it was then, plus the fact that, of course, there are far more people with weapons, and there would be uh, some support from the international community. I mean, I, I don't... I don't see the women in the Western world sitting uh, idly by if things were to come to the kind of situation that resembled, or could resemble, rather than resemble, could resemble what happened in 96. Okay. Yes, I'm so sorry, we didn't, just remind me again of your, I'm so sorry, just briefly, can you remind me of the question? Oh, yeah, the PDPA, Why, couldn't we, we need a dominant party, is there one on the horizon? I don't think there will be, do you think there will be, and if so, who Well, I mean, I think maybe the lesson of history, uh, Afghan history, is that you don't want a winner-takes-all situation, you don't want a dominant party, you want a coalition, uh, you know, that recognizes the ethnic differences in the country, the sectarian differences and the regional differences, uh, and the differences of ideology, so I, I'm not sure that that is necessarily desirable to try and look for some dominant party that can sort of control everything. Okay, the gentleman over there. Hello. Oh. Three very nice and excellent. I'm going to tell something, uh, but uh, not serious. Sorry, as, could you speak closer as, to the microphone? Is it all right? Yeah. Okay. No. No. Because uh, you told something uh, jokey, not serious. I, I'm uh, telling about that. Um, you um, called. Uh, uh, Amir al-Mu'manin Omar. What, what Amir al-Mu'manin Omar? <laughs> what is uh, the meaning of uh, Amir al-Mu'manin and how can somebody call uh, that terrorist and uh, that strange man Amir al-Mu'manin first? But <laughs> Um, my question is that um, um, when did Taliban announce practically to the world that they are not Muslim? Who are for? My answer to that, uh, to that question is that the day which they destroyed that uh, monument in that the in Bamiyan the mountain, Buddhas, you mean? in the mountain, you know, yeah. there was a big monument. It is about uh, 15 years ago, I think. Oh, I remember. 15 years ago. Oh, that was exactly uh, 10 years ago. Uh, no. 11 years ago. Something before, uh, you know, they destroyed that monument. That day, 
which I saw that, I told that these people, Taliban, what uh, they call them, what are uh, ruling Afghanistan, they are not Muslim. You know, they proved by destroying that monument, you know, which is not a heritage of Islam, that they are not real Muslim. So how you, uh, are you working with a, the ghost of Taliban? What is, what is that? If, uh, you know, you, uh, you say, uh, we say that uh, you and me and everybody, we say that uh, Assad regime is not legitimate, okay? So need to go out because of uh, his uh, criminal uh, job. So how uh, are you going to uh, discuss or negotiate with a uh, legitimate Taliban again? Are they legitimate? Are they really exist? What, what kind of people are you going to, uh, you know, discuss with, make, uh, you know, this is my question. This is not okay. a, yeah. serious, you know. Because, okay, <laughs> I, I understand. But, uh, now, uh, it's yeah. actually 10 to 8, so before I ask Francesca and Jonathan to sum up, I, I have to look right over there. Is there anybody else who wants to ask a question? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I'll try and be quick. Um, I've, we talk quite a lot already about the Taliban, but one thing we've not really uh, gathered upon is the weakness of Karzai's regime and of the warlords and how that's going to affect any peace settlement that comes out. Um, I remember, um, Jonathan, you mentioned that you want to see more um, foreign intervention in Afghanistan, like through through um, governance and uh, the UN agencies, but how much do you buy Rory Stewart's argument that actually this has made the, uh, made the Afghan government weaker by making it reliant and corrupted by, by foreign aid? So what, what's the likelihood that the, the process will just fall apart because of the weakness of, the, of Karzai's regime, its inherent corruptibility, and that it doesn't have the support of the Afghan populace? Okay, and one last question over here. Uh, going back to the myth that you talked about and trying to learn a bit from history, your point was that we didn't leave Afghanistan. We actually told the Mujahideen, don't negotiate with the other government, overturn it. Isn't that eerily similar to what we're doing now in Syria, telling the opposition, do not negotiate with the government who may want to negotiate with you? Okay. I, I, won't take, I won't take the last one because I think, um, uh, I think um, for sure that uh, Jonathan has something to say on it and I'm sure he has on the others. On the issue, I, mean, I, I did partly say it uh, was an element of humor the, when I called um, uh, Mullah Omar Emir al-Bominin, but I only said it partially, not because I believe he's the Emir al-Bominin, but because this is a seriously held view of the Taliban. 
And it, when it comes to the talks and to the eventual settlement, well, some formula will have to be found as to how you dispose of Mullah Omar. On the one side, he is needed probably if one is going to have a settlement with the Taliban. On the other hand, he can be a problem as to how to, what to do with him. Um, and now I'm not in favor of, I mean, I, 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 have, I would not have been in favor of negotiations with the Taliban. In 2001, at the end of 2001, I, was to, I, I would never have invited, this, now a colleague of mine claimed the Taliban should have been invited to Bonn. Of course, it, that was ridiculous. There was no way at that time of inviting the Taliban to Bonn, who, uh, and the Americans would have been the first ones to be totally opposed. The fact is that we've committed, and we, the West and the US in particular, have committed so many mistakes over the past 10 years that we are now in the sad situation of being forced to reach some kind of political settlement without which uh, things will become worse because there will probably be a series of civil conflicts, civil wars in various parts of the country. And so it's not out of desire that uh, I w or, uh, I'm saying, I, I think, and also it is clear now that the US uh, and the Europeans are looking for the way out. So that's the only reason. As for the question, which of course is, uh, should really have been addressed to me and not to Jonathan, I am a the believer in Western, uh, the Western presence or the Western international presence in Afghanistan, as I believe it in, all, in many places, provided it is done in the right way. Provided it is done in the right way. It is not the right way to, uh, to support warlords as the US did from the very beginning. It is not the right way to continue to pour money over on corrupt people. It is not uh, the way to not to support the embryonic um, multi-ethnic and um, pluralistic groups that exist in Kabul and which have received absolutely no help from, uh, from anyone. So those would be the points. All right, I'll stand again. Um, your question about dependence mentality, I mean, I think this is absolutely right, and I'm afraid it is something we've learned in the sort of last 20 years of, of uh, sort of international peacekeeping since the end of the Cold War. I mean, it's true in Bosnia, it's true in Kosovo, it's true almost everywhere where you have a post-war huge UN peacekeeping operation with all the huge inst inst institutions coming in, the World Bank and everybody else. The, the local government tends to be dependent psychologically on these people, totally dependent financially on them, and, uh, and it you know, does create the image that people are just uh, sort of puppets of the international community. Um, and so then when they begin to withdraw, they're left with nothing there that they can really point to as being what we've done for our people. It's all what the internationals did. So that is a, a real problem about um, sort of humanitarian intervention and what happens after you've got your regime changed. Um, but the Karzai government is not weak only because of that. The Karzai government is weak because it hasn't done anything, you know, enough about corruption. In fact, it's encouraged corruption, so it has had a bad track record, too. Um, 
So, um, you know, how that will change is, 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 is not clear, but uh, it, its own record is, is, is very poor. And, of course, the fraudulent elections of 2009 didn't improve its image either. Um, on the negotiations, I mean, with the Taliban, I mean, I, it wasn't possible in 2001 to negotiate with the Taliban. They had just been defeated. On the other hand, it might have been possible to delay the formation of a new government and sort of set it in stone quite so quickly with the hope that in the interim some of the Taliban, the so-called moderate Taliban, could have emerged from their defeat in 2001 and said, you know, we was wrong what we did, we made a mistake, we want to come back into the fold. But at that stage, the Americans were saying, no, 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 these people have to <coughs> stay out. Um, and some of them have come back into the fold and are living in Kabul now. Um, as senators even, some of them in the current uh, parliament in Kabul. So, so, so there are moderate Taliban, but when it comes to negotiations, I by my original point, is you have to negotiate with the people who've got the guns, however unpleasant uh, they are, or you think they are, and indeed many of them are very unpleasant, but they have the power, and if you want to stop the war, you have to do it. And uh, I think the lady that's gone now who asked about, uh, implied that you, know, you shouldn't talk to the Taliban because they are so unpleasant. In fact, a majority of Afghans want to talk to the Taliban. It's not just me saying this, it's not outsiders imposing the idea of talks with the Taliban. This is coming from Afghans. The Asia Foundation, which is a US-financed uh, organization, did a survey quite recently and uh, discovered that a majority of Afghans do want to talk to the Taliban. That's a change. I mean, four years ago, they didn't want that. They thought the Taliban, when they started re-emerging in an armed way in, in 2003, 4, etc., were very concerned and so on. But now the war's gone on so long, people see no other solution, majority, except to talk to them. Um, I don't want to get into the Syria parallel too much, except your point. Um, negotiations are one possible solution in Syria, which is, is not being tried. Uh, and uh, there may be a sort of inconsistency in sort of saying, let's have negotiations in Afghanistan, but not have them in Syria. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to just say one last word, which is I don't think Afghanistan was ever a humanitarian intervention. It was the war on terror. And there were some very good people, of which Francesca's one, who tried to make it more like a humanitarian intervention. But I think that's always been the tension. And I'd like to think there is some form. There's something between complete withdrawal and fighting a war against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda um, and that there is some middle position that one could still hold to. And so I'm giving myself the last word to say that. And that, uh, thank you very much both to Jonathan Steele and Francis Vendra.